Thanks, Jess. Oh, what the heck, go ahead and read the rest of the book. We almost got to the end right there anyway. You know, one of the things is when we make our way through a book like Mark, which again is one of four books in Scripture called the Gospels because they they chronicle the life of Jesus, there's going to be some overlap from week to week, meaning many times we're uh, we're actually only going to see subtle shifts in theme and in content as we go from uh, one passage to another. And that's that's a good thing, uh, by the way, uh, because it's not like what we heard last week uh, never needs to be covered again in our mind, right? It's, uh, it's, not, like, it's not like memorizing the alphabet uh, when we learn it once and we apply it perfectly every time we write it, except for those of you who never did, and I know because I read your Facebook posts. Uh, but again, none of you over the age of six you know, are typically waking up and practicing your letters you know, anymore. You know, uh, like another example is I don't, you know, I don't wake up next to my wife and go, you know, remind me of what your name is again. You know, like I'm good. I, I got that. Um, well, except for that one time when I was, I, was, I was praying for her in a big group and I forgot her name. But that was, that was like two years ago, right? We'd only known each other about 20 years up to that point. But it, it's, uh, it, it's different. It's different with the way that we approach God's Word because God's Word washes us. It washes our mind. It's kind of like bathing, right? And when I say that, what I mean by that is it's, uh, you know, that shower you took in February, like that doesn't cover you this month, right? And similarly, like we need God's Word to wash our minds clean every single day, every single week, like when I, when I rinse the old coffee grinds out of my, out of my French press every night, right? Um, it needs to be washed clean. Don't be in press. We use Folgers in that thing. Um, but uh, this is the beauty of going through books of the Bible, right? We get the constant washing and rinsing of God's Word applied by the Holy Spirit to our heads and hearts so that we can live out this beautiful, freeing life-giving truth with our hands. And what we've seen uh, the last few weeks in the life and ministry of Jesus, what we've seen are examples of his authority, which people have seen, what they've given witness to through his preaching and through his healing of, of sickness and disease and his casting out of demons. And simultaneously, what we've seen while he's been exhibiting that authority is we've seen conflict and we've seen opposition starting to sort of rear its ugly head as the result. I mean, he's just getting, he's getting called to the carpet now, especially by the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who are, who are almost kind of treating him like, like, like they're stalkers, right? They're finding him, and then they're just waiting. They're waiting for any opportunity to attack because he's taking their understanding and their practice of the Jewish law, and what he's doing is he's pointing out their gross distortion of it. And so what's happening with Jesus here with these particular people is that he's becoming less and less charming to them uh, by the minute. And we saw this last week, right? We saw four instances of this last week when the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they started accusing Jesus. They accused him because, number one, he went to parties with tax collectors and sinners. Like he liked to kick it with them. Number two, he didn't require his disciples to fast. And not only that, but on the Sabbath, he let them go out to the fields and pick grain because, you know, they were hungry, right? And then finally, he, uh, he healed a man, something that the Pharisees claimed was unlawful to do on the Sabbath. He actually heals a guy with a withered hand. He does it on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees are like, uh-uh. That's my modern translation, right? But in each of these occasions, what's happening is Jesus is showing how the rules and the regulations the Pharisees tried to keep had hardened their hearts It was hardening their hearts to the grace and mercy of God, which then resulted in them not having grace and mercy for other people, right? It was a vicious cycle. So 
we should probably get real straight here for just a, a minute. Because as we move through the conflict and the opposition that Jesus had with the Pharisees, our own conflict and opposition should kind of rise to the surface. Our own legalism should be located within us, right? Our own unbeliefs should be uncovered in that. The problem is that when we read all these really cute stories about the Pharisees, we rarely identify with them, don't we? Like none of us identify. Like few of you uh, look at these dudes and say, me, right? And I mean, not one of you, I'm just, I'm just calling you out right now. Not one of you has ever come up to me and said, Ronnie, pray for me, I'm, I'm a Pharisee. Like literally in four years, never happened. It's never happened once, right? It's kind of like watching a movie and saying, yeah, I'm, just, I'm the bad guy. Like none of us are the bad guy. Like all of us are Captain America and Iron Man. Like we're never the evil guys that they're fighting and trying to destroy and never seem to because there wouldn't be a, another, you know, 10 or 12 superhero movies this year if they did. Um, so saying all that, an uncomfortable but important question for us to ask ourselves is how much do we have in common with these people? How much do we have in common with the Pharisees? In other words, let me just kind of suss that out a little bit. Let me lean that question out. Here's my question. Are you more concerned about keeping rules or letting the grace of Christ rule your life? Here's another question. Have you taken doctrines that are clearly not issues of salvation and raised them up to be righteous requirements? Because I'm telling you, we kind of default into those things. Romans 8, 2 through 4 tells us this. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Dude, we are going there right now, right? Like this is happening. Because at the heart of the Pharisees' self-righteousness was unbelief. That's the heart of their self-righteousness. So even thinking that we have so little in common with the Pharisees is self-righteousness. It's walking according to the flesh. It's not being free in Christ from the law of sin and death. So check yourself with that. As we carry on through this passage today, the Pharisees did not believe Jesus. Either did the crowds, either did his family. They were immersed and enmeshed in unbelief. And what is unbelief? Unbelief is opposition to God, ultimately. Remember when Peter and Jesus, we go to Mark 8, we see Peter and Jesus having this little exchange where Jesus is telling him, hey, by the way, Petey, like I'm going to have to uh, eventually get to the cross and die. And Peter's like, not happening. And what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, get behind me, Satan. Peter's like, dude, I, last time I checked, my name was, you named me Peter. But he was saying, no, 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 there's, a, there's an opposition here that's working behind those rooted words of unbelief. He said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so what we're going to see today is that doing God's will starts with believing God's Son and living according to His words, which at the end makes us friends with Him. 
makes us friends with him. So that's the big idea today as we step through the passages that Jess just read for us. And there's a couple things going on here. If you put your eyes back down on verse 7 there, there's a couple of things going on as we look at verses 7 through 21. We see Jesus withdrawing with his boys once again. Uh, but the crowds that follow him have become so large that he tells his disciples, some of whom, again, were our former fishermen, to get a boat ready in case the people crush him, right? Again, Jesus continues to use their, their former vocation. A lot of these guys were fishermen, so he kind of uses the skills they have there to prepare a boat in case that he needs to get out there because the crowds were crowding him to the degree physically that he was afraid maybe he was going to be suffocated, right? So what we're seeing here early in Jesus' ministry, still at the very beginning of the book of Mark here, is this ever-increasing spike in his popularity, right? I mean, this, I mean, he is way past a local following, right? Like, he's not just playing, like, the club shows anymore, but he's, like, graduated to bigger venues, and he all these people following him that are, that are coming from different towns and different cities. And what's happening is it's creating a frenzy around him due to the fact that he's healing and he is exercising demons. That's, that's become the heart of his ministry along with preaching. But the thing is, everybody wanted a piece of Jesus because of the fact that he could heal them. He could make them well. He could make them whole again. And it kind of reminds us of some of the frenzy we see around celebrities. You know, like some people, they just, they reach that fever pitch. You know, if you're like Beyonce, like you just constantly, everything's at a fever pitch. Like everybody wants to be around her. She can't go anywhere. Everybody wants to touch her. Everybody wants something from her. It's not really about her music anymore. It's, it's about her. It's about her personality. It's about what she has to offer the public to entertain them. It was similar right here with what was happening with Jesus. But that kind of heart, it was crowding out the true heart of Jesus, wasn't it? Because the, the deeper implications were, yes, many people followed Jesus. The question is, were they faithful to him? Because to follow Jesus is to be faithful to his word. Now, the crowds, man, they just wanted something else. They wanted Jesus to be their magician and perform miracles. They wanted Jesus to be their physician and provide medicine. They wanted Jesus to be a performer and entertain them. They wanted him to be a wise sage who would just give them good advice. They didn't want Jesus for who he really was. They saw opportunity when they saw Jesus. What's interesting for us in our day is that great crowds still gather every Sunday in church buildings around the world. The question is, who are they there for? Who are we here for, right? Because being in a church doesn't equal belief in Jesus. Something for us to contemplate and to think about and to meditate on. And I know this from my own life, right? Because if you could time travel back into my teenage and young adult years, and I'm incredibly grateful that none of you can, so please, please stay off the internet. What you would see um, amongst a lot of different things is one of the things you might see is me faithfully going to church, right? If you had the, the internet crystal ball, right? You would see me, big R, you would see me faithfully going to church. I did. I went like three times a week. You would see me fellowshipping with church people, none of whom, by the way, were offended by Jesus, did I faithfully live out his words? Was I? Did I really believe him? Or, or did I just make the church my scene, my hang? Let's not look at the great crowds and assume that we have nothing in common with the direction and the motive of their hearts because Jesus was merely an advantageous opportunity for them to get something from him. 
which wasn't what Jesus had that they needed most. And as we get to verse 13, we see Jesus once again retreating. We see a pattern with Jesus, with the crowds and retreating. Once again, he retreats, he distances himself from the overbearing crowds, right? And he, what he does is he goes up the mountain, and this is the, a time in his life, the beginning of his ministry, that he actually calls his 12 apostles. And, and again, like, like Jess just read, he even gave some of them new names, right? He changed Peter's name from Simon to Peter, my favorite, the sons of thunder to James and John. It's like, I like that because I don't ever call anybody by their real name. And I'm like, and some people get mad at that. I'm like, well, yeah, but I mean, he called them sons of thunder. Like, what am I supposed to do? Call you by your real name now? I mean, the pattern's right there in scripture. That was funny, you guys. <laughs> he also calls Judas Iscariot. That's kind of, that's a little weird, right? Well, the way it says it right there in, uh, verse, uh, in verse 13, where he, where I, uh, going down from 13 to, to 20, where he, he calls Judas Iscariot, Right? He calls somebody that he knew would betray him. Another example of someone who followed Jesus but never believed, even though he was as close to him as anyone could have been. Judas was hanging with Jesus for three years. But notice how verse 13 says, Jesus called the men he desired, and they came to him so that they might be with him and he might send them out. And you know what we see here? We see this sort of beautiful allusion to the gospel call where God, God does the same thing for us. He chooses us. We come to him, and then he sends us out to them, to the world. This was the call to those who believed. John 1.12 tells us, but to all who did receive him, this would have been the disciples, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. These were men that he called that would also persevere. And they would have a lot of things to persevere through. But Judas never did. He didn't receive or believe, much like the crowds, much like the Pharisees, much like Jesus' own family that we're going to look into here in a minute. At the end of the day, it is not enough for us just to hang with Jesus. If this is just hanging with Jesus to you, it's not enough. In Matthew twenty-two fourteen, 14, Jesus tells us that many are called but few are chosen. Judas was called. Judas wasn't chosen. He never believed. But this unique call of his apostles meant, for them, it meant being trained under his leadership. It says it right there in the rabbinic tradition. It meant that they were going to be hanging with him, right? They were going to have formal and informal education, on-the-job training to preach and to cast out demons and authenticate the authority of Jesus. In fact, if you go up to Mark 6, you'll eventually find that he sends them out in pairs to do just that. He sends them out into the towns and into the villages. And then we see in verse 20, as we're moving through, we're kind of powering through right now, that after this gathering, again, Jesus retreats. Jesus goes home again. But the crowds follow him. They won't leave him alone. They continue to escalate their volume and their numbers, and they continue to grow to the point that these brothers, Jesus and his disciples, I mean, they can't even eat. I mean, they literally can't even eat anymore. And in fact, the demands on Jesus become so significant in verse 21 that it starts to create conflict with his own uh, family members who, who it says try to, to seize him, which is really kind of weird as I read this because, um, you know, when are family members ever a problem? right? 
Um, like, I literally don't see the problem here at all because most of us never have any, have any issues with our own family. But here's what we know to be true, and if it's not true about you, that's because you're a liar, so let me be truthful with you right now. Jesus' family is like my family and your family in that they thought he was crazy, right? So if you ever want to, like, hang out with me and Callie, with my family... They're going to pull you off to the side and they're going to go, dude, what's up? Wait, are, you, are you friends with him right now? Can you explain Big R to me? That's what they're going to do because they think I'm crazy. What they did was they saw his family, they saw the celebrity culture that was surrounding Jesus. The people almost crushing him and preventing him even from eating. And it caused them to question his sanity. Because this was something really unique that was happening. And so what they did was they took it upon themselves to rescue him or to attempt to rescue him there in verse 21. So to his family, we have to remember, Jesus was just the son of a carpenter. He was just a carpenter's child like them. And they had no explanation for this. They actually didn't believe him. They had no explanation for the preaching, for the miracles, the exorcisms. They had no explanation for the crazy crowds. So their only conclusion was he's losing his mind. Their hearts hadn't been opened to who Jesus truly was. You know what that does? It calls into question who we think. Jesus really is, and how secure our definition of Jesus really is. C.S. Lewis has this great quote from his book, Mere Christianity, that poses this thought. He says, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God But listen to what he says, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems obvious to me that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, this is C.S. Lewis talking, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So that's not an unusual thing. That's not an unusual thing for God, for Christ and the people of Christ to be accused of not thinking correctly and something being wrong with their minds. Years later, the Apostle Paul would be accused of being out of his mind when he shared the gospel before Festus, one of the Roman officials, while he was making his defense in Acts 26. Again, it wasn't just the family of Jesus who accused Jesus of craziness either. The scribes and the Pharisees accused him of much worse. And that's because, again, unbelief blinds us to the truth. Verse 22 says this, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. So what we see here is that the opposition, the conflict Jesus had, it continues. And what he does here in this particular instance is he uses some logic. He kind of comes at it, uses some simple logic to show the holes in the scribes' opinion of him. Because they say he was only casting out demons because he was demon-possessed by Beelzebul. And this word is sort of a mocking title. It's basically kind of referring to an old idol from the Old Testament named Baal or Prince Baal. It was also a word that meant Lord of the Flies. Maybe some of you guys have read that book or seen that movie. But it was a way for them to throw a name at him that was clearly mocking him and causing him to have to respond. Um, So Jesus says this, man. Jesus rounds them up, right? Jesus rounds up these boys and asks, fellas, Here's a question for you. Why would Satan cast out Satan? He says, how will his kingdom stand if he divides it himself? 
In verse 27, he kind of uses this short parable to illustrate that if you break and enter a strong man's house, do a little burglary, all right? You can't steal his TVs, appliances, or computers until you take down the strong man. Like, it's so simple here. And what Jesus is illustrating is that the opposite of what they were framing him with and throwing at him and accusing him of was, was actually happening. Not only was Jesus not possessed by Satan, he was actually crushing the work of Satan by casting out demons by the power of not Satan, but of the Spirit, and overthrowing the powers of darkness by his authority over them. So he's saying it's just the opposite of what's happening. Now, there was something even deeper and more insidious that's going on here, right? Which was a hardening of the scribe's heart. Because even though they saw Jesus casting out demons by the power of the Spirit, they attributed the work to Satan. But Jesus points to the real danger of this in verse 28 uh, when he says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. And then he goes on to say in 29, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So let's break this down for a quick minute. Jesus says this, All sins and blasphemies against me on this earth um, they will be forgiven. Jesus is saying, in effect, that anybody that comes to him in repentance against the things that they say against him and the ways that they blaspheme and insult and slander him, that's going to be forgiven. In fact, 1 John 1, 1.9 says, uh, if we confess our sins, he is what? He's faithful and just. He'll forgive us our sins. He'll forgive us of unrighteousness. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, he said, will not be Forgiven, and, and this has classically been referred to as the unpardonable or the unforgivable sin. Maybe some of you guys have heard of that. So first off, what, it, what does it mean to blaspheme? Well, that word literally means to just insult or to slander or to speak an untruth against somebody. So then, therefore, you know, what, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, specifically here, uh, Jesus is pointing out that it's attributing the works of himself, the works of Jesus, to Satan. More broadly... More broadly, for our purposes here, it's a hardness of heart is what it is. It's a hardness of heart toward the Holy Spirit, against the Holy Spirit. It's a resistance that we build to the truth that never leads to repentance. It's believing ultimately that Jesus is a liar, which is the root and the heart of unbelief. And what happens is, is whenever we start creating our own theology which is really in effect what, what unbelief is, it's creating our own theology. But when we create our own theology, the root is always unbelief. Now, and all of us have imperfect theology. Because really, in fact, every time we sin, we're in effect saying that we don't believe what God has spoken is true. Right? That's bad theology. But for the believer, what happens is the Holy Spirit reveals God's truth and moves that person to repentance. And the result of that is a deeper love and belief in Jesus. Now, for those who don't have the Spirit of God living inside of them, what happens is they, they don't believe and they don't repent, but they continue to suppress the truth. And after a lifetime of that, they enter eternity as unrepentant, unforgiven sinners who have no place in God's kingdom. So the unforgivable sin, if we can use that phrase since it is right there, is an unrepentant heart. So some of us have been afraid of that. You know, that was one of those things where I grew up and, you know, my youth pastor probably had like five or six meetings every week with, you know, kids like us coming up saying, I think I 
committed the unpardonable sin. And we probably didn't say the word unpardonable. I, I, don't, I don't know if I knew what that meant when I was 15. Um, but uh, the question for us is, well, have we done that? Have we committed that sin? Well, only if we have never confessed our sin and trust Christ's death on the cross for our salvation, right? So we don't want to cloud this um, because really at the heart of all of this is unbelief. And it is a pattern. It is a lifestyle of unbelief all the way through your life where you just continue to reject the truth of Christ in your heart and in your life. It's spooky stuff. It's sobering stuff what he says here. And then we get to verse 1, and Jesus provides an answer for the opposition. He provides an answer for the unbelief. Once again, his family finds him. I mean, can we just be honest right now and say not a great day for Jesus, right? I mean, no time for a meal. The family thinks you're crazy. The, the religious dudes accuse you of demon possession, Right, like that's like never happened. Like even my family's never gone that far with me, right? But the scribes accuse him of demon possession, and then your family shows up again, just at the right time, right? And they demand your attention. Because after all, from their perspective, man, somebody needs to do some damage control. Because our brother, our brother's out of control, is what they're thinking. This is what's curious as we look into this, these, these final verses, 31 through 35. Curiously, Jesus doesn't go to them after they call. Wait, you mean like, like his mom and his brother said, hey, I, I need you here. And he said, no. Yep, it's possible. It's possible, right? Jesus doesn't go to them. He doesn't placate them, right? He doesn't respond to their beck and call. He's actually not concerned that his mom and brothers might be upset with him. Imagine that. He understands the root of the issue. The root of the issue is unbelief. So he does something far more radical. He redefines who his real family is in verse 33. Who's my family, he asks in verse 33. He looks around at the people gathered around him. Don't, don't miss this. Get a, get a picture for that. He's sitting. He's in his house. He sees the people around him. His family, the people he was raised with, the people he ate with, the brothers and sisters that he grew up with, they're out there. He's in here. He asked the question. He said, well, who's my family? He says, you are. You are. He looks around the room. You are if you do the will of God. Dude, are we going to miss that? Like, are we going to miss the implications of that? I mean, Jesus is sitting there and he's saying, you will be my family. It's not a, D it's not a DNA thing. It's not a flesh and blood thing. There's something far greater that ties you together. Why do we sing together on Sundays? Because there's something far greater that's tying us together. Why do we pray together? Because there's something far deeper that's tying us together. Why do we take communion? Because there's something far deeper that's tying us together. You are closer with one another than you are to even your own family if they don't know Christ. There's a lot more of us, too. I mean, isn't that just astounding? Jesus looks at them and says, you're my brother. You're my sister. You're my mother if you do God's will. It's beautiful. It's hopeful. It's encouraging. Let's flesh that out for a few minutes as we close because I want to talk about what it means what it means to be the brother and sister of Jesus. In other words, 
Let me ask it like this. What will separate you from the crowds, from the Pharisees, from the biological family to be considered the mother, brother, sister of Jesus? Number one is this. It means believing in the real Jesus. Believing in the real Jesus. How do you know the real Jesus? Well, Tim Keller makes this great quote, and he says, uh, Knowing Jesus is not merely believing that he exists, but that he matters. I loved that. All these groups of people, they saw him. They believed that he existed, but they wanted to conform Jesus into their own image. Do some of you guys do that? Is Jesus just somebody that you take and you shape and you form to fit your life? You know, a good example of this is this uh, best-selling novel turned movie called The Shack. Maybe some of you guys have, have read it or seen it. Um, you know, look, let's be honest. It's, it's something that kind of pulls on the heartstrings. Um, but it unfortunately, it recreates God into its own image, right? Again, it's okay if you've seen or read The Shack. Like, we don't do that up here. We don't tell people what to watch or what not to watch. That's not my job. Um, but it is my job to say this, okay? Because when we're talking about understanding who Jesus is, and having a further understanding of the depths and knowledge of his grace. We need to find that out from here, right? That, that's, that's what we've been given to know who Jesus is. So we need to be on guard, right, against anything that bends the words of God. Because the comfort that it brings, the emotion that it evokes, it may be counterfeit, right? I mean, the, the emotion's real, the tears are real, but we need to be careful because it could be a counterfeit comfort. Because let me just say this, you guys, the, the way that Jesus comes in the flesh to heal our sin disease and defeat the darkness on the cross, that is the most emotional, heartfelt, inspiring, comforting, and beautifully produced narrative ever written. I'm not even talking about the shack anymore. I don't care about the shack. I'm saying, let's believe, let's adopt Let's behold and let's pull in the real Jesus. Let's embrace the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, right? Because you know who wasn't doing that? The crowds, the Pharisees, and his family. Why be soothed by a substitute? Why? I remember I grew up my whole life because I was born in the 70s. And uh, it was that era of processed food. I guess it still is. So I grew up just eating margarine my whole life, right? I, li I liked margarine, right? I'm a margarine fan, right? I mean, you guys are like, we all still eat margarine, Martin. Um, but then I remember when I married the beautiful Melissa Martin. And um, I remember the first time she actually used this, it was this stuff called butter. And I tasted it, and I spread it on something, and I went, this is the best thing I've truly ever eaten in my entire life. And she said, is there anything, is there something else? I go, yeah, I've been eating, eating, you know, these tubs. It's called like margarine. And she went, oh my gosh, that's never happening in our house. And I said, thank you. I said, thank you. The people wanted a substitute. Listen, the people wanted a different Jesus. That's what they wanted. Do you? Or do you see who he is and you see what he's doing. Did they see what he was doing? They did, but they didn't believe it. 
So to be the brother and sister of Jesus means believing in the real Jesus too. It means keeping Jesus on the throne. Jesus was a king. Jesus was the Messiah. He was the king establishing his new kingdom. Most of you think, man, I would never attribute the works of Satan to Jesus. I would never call him a madman. But the heart behind those accusations was unbelief. They didn't believe Jesus was king. So it causes us to ask the question, what areas in your life do you not believe Jesus is king? Dude, look close. Be brutal about that, right? What will you find detached? What areas do you keep yourself the reigning king over instead of Jesus? And we kind of have this expression in our culture now. It's called me time, right? We have a me time culture, right? What are the me time areas of your life that Jesus has no say in, that he is not king over? If Jesus is king, he's king over all. Because see, the, the, the Pharisees and the family, they saw a carpenter. They didn't see a king. Is Jesus your king or is he your fill in the blank? What is he? In other words, will you remove the crown from those objects and desires that have become king in your life? Because they are most likely idols of distrust and unbelief. And certainly that's what they turn into if they go undealt with. So being the brother and sister of Jesus means believing in the real Jesus, keeping Jesus on the throne, and finally, he said it right there at the end in 35, it's doing the will of God. The biggest competition with God's will in our lives is our will, right? The tendency is to believe Jesus is something, but not everything. Doing God's will, what is that? It's believing in the one God sent, John 6. The work of God is that you believe in him who he has sent. That's actually a work that God does in you, as you don't just believe in Jesus, but you believe Jesus, right? And then you obey the one that you believe. And you know what? It's a joyful obedience. It's a joyful obedience. Look at the apostles. Look at the people. Look at the men who were with him. These were brothers who were on a path to martyrdom. None of them were going to live. And yet, we read of their eager and joyful obedience as we read through the New Testament. How? What did they have that eluded the crowds, the Pharisees and the family? It was faithfulness to God under the yoke, under the weight, under the lightness of his grace. Experiencing peace with God, then pleasing God from a love-infused gratefulness. Too happy clappy? It wasn't for the apostles. It wouldn't be. They pleased God through the pain, which was the path of joy that came with being part of the family of God. John 14 says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Jesus said, believe also in me. An untroubled heart. Do you know what that is? That's one that becomes set on the trustworthiness of Jesus for every decision, for every fear, for every joy, for every heartache, for every death. There's a woman in our community named Megan Strine who died of cancer at 32. 
the trustworthiness of Jesus through every death, through every pain, through every agony, through every job loss, through every family breakup, through every relational crack, for every relocation, the trustworthiness of Jesus, the belief in Him. What's Jesus doing that you see, but that you're not seeing, but that you can't see? The crowds could only see opportunity. Listen, the Pharisees could only see offense, and his family only saw an oddity, right? They were so consumed with themselves, they couldn't see what he was really doing. They believed in Jesus, but they didn't believe Jesus. It's like if you ever like, have been walking around with something that you're looking for, it's like missing something that's been there the whole time. But then there were those, he says at the end, who did God's will, and they saw Jesus. He was in their midst. Do you want Jesus for Jesus? Will you believe him and live according to his words for every area of your life? Because that is always what is hanging in the balance. And as we celebrate communion this morning, we see how that balance now has been steadied by the cross of Christ for those who believe him. Amen? Okay, I'm going to pray, and then Zach is going to come up. He's going to lead us through this morning. God, we pray that you would help our unbelief. Like the centurion that said, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, we know that believing Jesus is our pathway to joy and to hope. And yet, we have other things in our life. We have other beliefs in our life. We have other unbeliefs that crowd you out. So, Lord, we pray right now as we submit to your word, as we have seen so clearly through these passages in Mark, Lord, that everything you have for us, everything you did for us is so that we could be your family. We could be your brother and sister and mother. Lord, so we pray, Lord, that that heart, that heart of sitting with you and seeing what it is that you're doing, immersing ourselves in the truth of your word, Lord, we pray that that would radically transform and change us, Lord, so that we are not just a group of people who belong to a church, but we're a group of people that believe in the Jesus of the church. Lord, help us, and thank you for your gift of the cross that we are going to receive once again in remembrance and rejoicing, we pray in your name. Amen.